Welcome to the Cocktail Lovers Podcast. I'm Sandra. And I'm Gary. And together, we are the Cocktail Lovers. We're a married couple and we've been writing about cocktails for the past 12 years. But this is the place where we'll be talking about cocktails. We're going to be talking about products. We're going to be talking about books. And we're going to be talking about the bars that we love and we think that you'll love too. We'll also be checking in with some of the biggest names in the industry and asking them to share their top tips with us to help you up your mixing game at home. We like to think of ourselves as your new best friends cocktail wise so let's hear what's on the show this week hunkering down holiday season call it what you will but there's no mistake in this unique time of year here in the uk the days are definitely darker the nights are getting longer and there's a distinct chill in the air so this week we're warming up with not one but two rums very different indeed la hechicera from Colombia, and Rum Union from Scotland. Our reading matter too will help us through the long evenings at home as we pour over the wonderful new book from J.M. Hirsch, Pour Me Another, 250 Ways to Find Your Favourite Drink. As for our bar review, we spend an escapist evening at Velvet, the seriously sexy, lush and delicious brand new offering from Salvatore, the maestro Calabresi. And our guest is the internationally respected Leo Robicek, who tells us about the pursuit of perfection, holiday celebrations at his new opening, Common Decency at Nomad London, as well as sharing some tasty tips for Thanksgiving. But first, we are the cocktail lovers, so let's make ourselves a cocktail. So we have Thanksgiving coming up next week and we thought, well, I thought that it would be good to do something with a little bit of a, a nod to our friends across the pond. Okay. And we're going to New York. Mm. In particular, we're going mm. right to Manhattan. Manhattan. Yeah, Fantastic. And, yeah. And it's one of those cocktails that I'm really surprised that we haven't done before in our little what we're mixing I today. I know. It's thing. one of those times that like, we must have done it. And then you sort of look back and you actually know we, how remiss of us. I know. We, absolutely. It is a favourite cocktail. Of, it's a great ours. classic. Um, you know, one that's few ingredients, really simple, great ratios. So let's get on with it. Mm. And also, I must say, because we've got a little bit of a cold this week, I thought this would really work well. It's my medicinal Manhattan. Indeed it is. I like that. So what we start with, we've got some wonderful Buffalo Trace. Mm. So you can either use bourbon or rye whiskey in this, but we're going for Buffalo Trace Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, which is perfect. So we have 50 mils each per serve of that. Also, the Manhattan, it's one of those drinks for me. It's like, I mean, although I would have it certain times of the year anyway, when you get into these dark really autumn and winter nights, I really think, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. fancy a Manhattan. Indeed. Yeah. So and then we have 
25 mils of dry or sweet vermouth. Well, it depends what type of Manhattan you're going for. You're I going mean, for a sweet Manhattan. I'm going for a sweet Manhattan. I could have gone into all of the history stuff because there's all these different tales. Like all of these classic cocktails, there's myriad stories that surround them. All of them rubbish, to be honest with you. <laughs> they're not rubbish. <laughs> not rubbish. But they, but you know, they're, they're, they're sort of myths, you know. So people, me amongst them. <laughs> yeah. But there's, there's myriad stories. And a lot of them have been dispelled, mm. more, more notably by um, David Wondrich, who has dispelled this one of the myths that had been going around for a long time, which was that it was invented in the Manhattan Club for Jenny Jerome, who was Winston Churchill's mother. Yeah. But um, David Wondrich, being the amazing historian that he is, he traced back the dates and realised that it couldn't have been for her. She wouldn't have been at the place at the time because she was in England. You know, all yeah. of these different things. But anyway. But you know. that's what I do like about cocktail folklore. Oh, is, yeah. You know, there's certain things in our time we thought, oh, that's set in stone. And then someone like that, David, comes along and says, well, actually, no, I've researched No, it, it wasn't. Absolutely. Actually, just going back also to your thing about you're using sweet vermouth for all. So that's a sweet Manhattan. Yes. I used to, when I first had Man- Manhattan many years ago, I used to light my dry with dry vermouth. Then I gradually moved to the perfect one with a bit of dry yes. vermouth and sweet vermouth. Now I prefer this version. Yeah, exactly. And I was going to say, so there are different styles. So you can have the sweet one, which we're having here, with um, the sweet vermouth. And so it's just the half... So if you just think, so you've got 50 mils of the bourbon or the rye and then 25 mils of the sweet vermouth. Yeah. And then what you, what I didn't tell you, I've just added two dashes of Angostura oh, aromatic yeah. bitters. The seasoning. And the other thing about, I think when it's called a sweet Manhattan can be a bit misleading because I remember yeah, talking sweet, to someone sweet. years ago and saying I like to sweet, and sweet Manhattan and they said, I don't like sweet drinks. Mm. And it's not a sweet it's drink. So not it's a not drink. a sweet drink. Sweet it's drink. A, a sweet vermouth that is um, nice balanced out by your by your whiskey yes exactly so that's that the dry what dry vermouth as it as its name implies that uses dry um vermouth and then you can have a perfect manhattan which is um equal parts of the dry and the sweet vermouth with your bourbon oh so I see you pouring that into I your, am your chilled chilled glassware. Glass. Sorry, yeah. folks. I assume that everyone knows that we're always talking chilled glassware here. Yes, it's a given. It Chill is. your glasses, or don't at your. <laughs> what's the word? Or I'm don't what? For. No, if you don't, it's. I'm just going to say it's a big mistake not to chill your glasses when you're pouring in a chilled cocktail. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can get away with it, but honestly, it just enhances the drinking experience yeah. when you when you do. And then now we have wonderful maraschino mm. cherries that go in. So mm. I've got a lovely mm. little cocktail stick, yeah, which I think yeah. makes them look so elegant. Yeah, well, it's having... a lovely little metal cocktail stick, yes, I should say. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Those Sustainable, we're doing elegant. that. But also it looks beautiful and you can stir it round and it has that lovely 50s feel, I think. Yeah. There's something very super cool and cocktail hour about mm. this. So... Here you go. Here's Man. to your cold. <laughs> As if Let's I needed hope an excuse that for it. It helps you soldier on with the rest of the episode. Thank you. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> cheers. Mm. Oh, Just perfect. I feel better already. <laughs> So our choice today is a rum. We haven't done a rum for quite a while, actually, have we? No. 
Yeah, so I thought that we'd go with this one. It's quite new. It was actually launched in in September. Um, It's called Rum Union, and it's a blended rum made by some people in Scotland, actually. It's at the Holyrood Distillery. So usually Scotland, we will think whiskey, scotch, gin even. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And Holyrood Distillery do make some great gins and some great whiskies. But this is um, one of their rums. So they have got some rums already, which they've won awards for. Though the first ever British producer to be awarded the IWSC Rum Producer of the Year for their Elizabeth Yard rums, which this actually comes under the same umbrella. But anyway, I'm waffling, waffling, waffling. No, absolutely. So the reason it's called Rum Union is it because it marries the flavours of three count them, three Three. non-traditional rum-producing countries. Uh, So we've got Philippines. Right. We've got Vietnam Uh, and Ghana. (laughs) So that's all blended into one very, they describe as complex. Oh, I've just noticed this. There's something very, um, smells like a bit of a Jamaican rum. There's that sort of... You jumped ahead. Yeah, I know, because I just got a waft of it. But anyway... So the sugarcane juice is harvested from Vietnam and then it's blended with pot still rum from Ghana and then a molasses-based rum from the Philippines. So yeah, It's already an intriguing story. Yeah, and also, as I was saying about this nose, it reminds me of some of the kind of funky rums that you get from Jamaica, which are much more, um, I'd say, sort of banana-y. You know, there's something... Yeah, it is that well, sort of banana thing on there. Talk about the bottle a little bit. Yes, yeah, of course. We haven't mentioned that. I haven't mentioned the bottle. It's, you know, it, uh, there's not too much going on yeah, with that sort of round and squat. like the um, the label, though. Mm. So uh, I don't know how you describe that. It's got a slightly retro feel, but yeah, it's sort of nice, nice typography. Very yeah, clean. it's not, it's, you know, sometimes we have these wonderful labels that there's a lot to talk about. This is, you know, it's what it is. I wouldn't say that there's much, very much, um, you know, outstanding about it. But what I do love is the fact that it is this union of a trinity of brilliant rums come together in one union as they like to say you know what that thing you mentioned just now about uh, on that the funkiness well no i was gonna say the uh banana, banana yeah banana. that really hits you actually mm. it's a lovely um i didn't say it's not a white rum it's quite a goldeny color um rum and that does come through in in the bottle you'll see it's that very smooth got a lovely almost syrupy mouthfeel yeah so mm. it's been made there's no additional colorings flavors or additives and it's non-chill filtered, for those of you that want to know these kind of things. And they say, oh, they actually talk about the banana estery bits, which is wonderful. And then there's also, oh, that's that's most of what I get, to be honest. Um, they talk about stone fruits and everything, but I get the banana and I quite like that. I think that for me, this isn't a neat drinking rum. I would have this definitely in a cocktail. Yeah. Something like, you know, our favourite, like a pina colada. Da- mm. Daiquiri, would that go into daiquiri? I think more of a sort of sunshiny type of um, thing a- along the pina colada lines, which would be fantastic. 
So that is Rum Union and it's 70 CL, um, 39.99 from Holyrood Distilleries and probably from online stores like Master of Malt as well. So as you said, uh, we haven't done rum for a long time. So you've just done a rum. I'm doing a rum. Oh, <laughs> I didn't realise. <laughs> no, I didn't realise you were doing it. <laughs> yes, folks, we don't actually always discuss what yeah. we're going to talk about, which is quite nice, really, mm. surprise each other. So maybe it's just this sort of colder, grey weather. We're both getting drawn. Gravitating to the... towards the sunshiny vibes of yeah, rum. Absolutely warming us up. So I've gone for a rum called La Echisira. Is that, have you been practising? I have. All right, okay. <laughs> La Echisira. Marvellous. Um, and it's a Colombian rum, and it comes from, they say, the most biodiverse nation on earth. So, as they say, it's between two oceans, three mountain ranges, and there's this amazing ecosystem of all sort of cloud forest, tropical rainforest, deserts, plains. So, it kind of paints a nice picture where they're producing this. So, anyway, it's produced by a family, uh, the Riosos family, who've been ageing and blending rum for 20 years. Mm. And what they do, they travel around the Caribbean, they source raw spirits, they find interesting casks. And under the eye of their master blender, who is called Geraldo Mitacuro Cayagna. Oh, God. I love to set myself all these challenges, don't I? And wow. I'm, I know I'm getting them all right. Yeah. Um, he started actually just cutting the sugar cane. Hmm. But he's worked his way up. He comes from his son of Japanese immigrants. So there's also an element, it says, of he utilizes the precision of the samurai. Oh, okay. And he's blending. So that's kind of an interesting hmm. balance. And they describe it as an unpolished rum, by which they mean that's not been finished with additives or sugar. So all the smoothness comes from the, the wood, which it's aged in. So quite a lot of stuff going on there. So it's also a multi-award winning rum. So let me talk a little bit about this bottle, because this has got um, some really nice detail on the on the glass. It's all lots of etching, which I think yes. is all reflecting yes. the... Now, this is one that has got much yeah, more going on on the bottle. Uh, sort of di- that, that sort of biodiversity uh, background. And yes. that beautiful blue seal, which I really Yeah, like that's really front, front of centre like of it. cobalt blue, really mm. chops out. And I do, as you said, I love that, the etching on the side. Very beautiful, very lush, very tropical. And the the juxtaposition of the the brown rum inside and that blue on the outside is really, really, really attractive. It looks lush, doesn't it? Yeah. It's a blend of rums all between 12 and 21 years. So let me just get this seal off. Oops, here we go. Right, generous measures as ever for your tasting. Thank you. Look cool, it's got a nice hue. hue. I knew you were going to say that. Yes, that. that's a richer colour than the Rum Union. Yeah, well, so it's very... more intense. That's lovely. And it's quite nice doing two rums side oh. by side because they're very different on the nose. As we said, as soon as I opened the Rum Union, it was very much about the banana. This is... More, I would say, sort of brown sugar, which yeah. is lovely. Well, um, that's really interesting you say that, because um, I think it is, uh, again, in, in contrast, this could be a, a beautiful sipping, sipping rum. Sipping rum, yeah. Just as it is. Mm. Uh, we're having it at room temperature. You could have a little bit of ice. But they also have 
a serve they recommend called a gold fashioned. Ah, yes. Okay. And you mentioned uh, uh, the brown sugar that you're getting mm. from it. And they advise making their gold fashioned with brown sugar cube. Any choice of bitters. So, you know, go with the flow, cocoa, mm. aromatic, whatever. But also edible gold dust. So I don't think you're going to be getting that necessarily. Oh, I maybe at Christmas? Maybe. I don't know how much edible gold dust cost yeah it's not but, anyway, but seriously i think it this would make a great old-fashioned with or without yes yeah this is definitely an old-fashioned rum yeah. love it and it's it's matured in bourbon cast and i think that comes through so i really like this i think it's uh i think it's a bargain actually it's 40 pounds for a 70 cl bottle oh right so both of them quite yeah. the same yeah so yeah. that's great great rum so details is always on our website and now for a cocktail hack from one of our experts. My name is Julie Reiner from Clover Club in Brooklyn, New York. My cocktail book is called The Craft Cocktail Party Delicious Drinks for Every Occasion, which is geared towards making great drinks at home. And one of my favorite cocktail hacks is the use of jam in drinks. Uh, so often we don't have fresh raspberries or strawberries in our refrigerator. Uh, and it's such a great way to add not only that fruit flavor, but also sweetness to a cocktail. So try it out. All right, so our bar this week takes us into the glamorous, seductive world of a bar that's recently opened and it's called Velvet. And I think that sets the tone, calling a bar Velvet. Yes, it does. It's lush, it's luxe, it's gorgeous, it's it's glamorous. And it's a little bit of escapism in this crazy world that we're all living in. You step behind these beautiful, really heavy draped velvet curtains and you go into this new world yeah. of you know cocktail glamour and well, gorgeousness it feels like you're in a little bit of a secret world yes because yes. the hotel is beautiful anyway but you go through and you just feel like you've left the real world behind mm. and you enter this wonderful velvety world of lushness yeah so it's there's a great team behind it it's headed up by salvatore calabrese the maestro the maestro and one of the most respected bartenders in the world he also heads up the the, the team at donovan bar at browns but this is his second london venture and it suits him down to a t yes it does. um he's also got a team there great team they are Christian Maspes and Christian Silenci. And so together and with the rest of the team, it is like this beautiful orchestra that's being played and watched out in, in this room. And the music theme does carry on, really, because originally this was the bassoon bar and they've got this amazing piano bar top yeah. at, the, at the back of the room. And it has set the scene for what the space is. It's all about music and it's about glam and gorgeousness. Well, even more than music, <laughs> it's about theatre. Theatre, that's because, it. Because uh, they describe it as being a sort of, a bar being like theatre and they welcome you to their theatre. Mm. And I, the thing about this, what really strikes me about it and why I love it, for me, it's what a bar... I thought would be a great cocktail bar when I was growing up. Mm. You know, when I used to watch old movies and that kind of thing. And I was, I think, oh, I want to go to a bar like that. And that is that bar. Yes, it yeah. is. It is. It's wonderful. And so it's all sort of deep, plush red velvets and yeah. blues. And 
just something about it that the lighting is just right Absolutely. the the music whether there is live music but when the live music isn't playing the sound system is just right you can hear yourself you, you know then the live music comes on and that is gorgeous it doesn't, it doesn't overtake it doesn't take over. which is very rare to get in a bar space that usually if there is live music it it sort of you have to focus on that yeah. even though here you do focus on it but it doesn't take over it's absolutely fantastic and the band that we saw when we were there perfect you but know they, they looked the they part. looked she looked a bit jessica rabbit yes so, yes you know. it was lovely really really good so on to the drinks it's it's kind of um salvatore calls it it's it's a meeting of minds between 1920s glamour and 2020s glamour yes, you know which is a nice way in yeah, yeah so on the drinks list you do have some of these cocktails that nod to the 1920s or they're an homage to 1920s drinks so you have things like the adonis which is fino sherry mancino rosso and bitter and this adonis cocktail was created in honor of the 1884 broadway musical you have things like the Brandy Daisy, which is another fantastic, simple cocktail that Harry Johnson published in 1882. But that's Remy Martin, VSAP, with yellow chartreuse, lemon juice, sugar and soda. So those two of the examples from the 1920s. Um, from the 2020s, there's things like the Velvet Smash, which is Tanqueray Number no. 10, Aqua Bianca, which, which is, is Salvatore's um, liqueur. Basil, lemon juice and sugar. Um, there's a truffle Sazerac, which I had, which is truffled Remé Martin VSOP, bullet bourbon, pecho and salty orange bitters, umami syrup. And so I would say that the truffle really did come through on this. So if you're not a truffle person, don't go for this. But it is a nice mashup or a different yeah. way, a different interpretation of a Sazerac. And I think it's uh, talking about the menu again generally. Not no surprise that I was drawn instantly to the section which is a uh, velvet martini. Yes. So they've got six, count them six interpretations of martini mm -hmm. so I, I would personally be going back to work my way through them one yes. by one so we both had a martini yeah, what was I, yours i had the velvet dirty mm, martini that's a good one Molly pratt and olive brian and it, it was just delicious it was just everything a martini should be and it had that lovely little bit of umami yeah and yeah. also it's not like you'd consider a normal dirty martini that's usually a bit just cloudy and clear yeah, almost it's cloudy and clear but you know what i mean yeah but this has got a darkness to it and this comes from the particular olive that they use i think it's from greece or something it was from greece, and yeah. it's just like it lends this sort of brownness yeah. you know this mystique and gorgeous taste to it doesn't it really yeah. and also i think it's worth saying so i think in terms total i think there's 24 cocktails across these four menus and they're all 21 to 23 pounds mm. um, apart from the vintage menu. the vintage sorry let me just talk about my martini that talk i had i had <laughs> i had the salty martini yeah. which is tanqueray number no. 10 dry fino sherry and caper brine and that was delicious it's got so many layers of flavor really challenging but complex and absolutely 
bang on tasty. Yes, Loved it. it um, as well as the golden vintage cocktails, which we'll come on to, there's also Salvatore's signatures. So if you're a fan of Salvatore's drinks, oh, there's the, the breakfast martini. Yeah, yeah, that's one always of one of our favourites. Yeah. Spicy 50, yeah. you know, some of his great classic dr- drinks, which always follow him wherever he goes, as so. they should do. Yeah. So what about the vintage ones? Uh, well, I mean, if you're feeling flush, I mean, mm-hmm. I, and I think Salvatore, I don't know if he was the first person to do this, but certainly one of the first. Yes, I don't know. Probably but, first. But to really seek out vintage spirits and make classic cocktails with spirits from those decades. So I think, I don't know, uh, I'm trying to think how many there were on the menu, but... Oh, yes, six. There we go, six. And so, for instance, there's a sidecar, which is made with Hein Cognac from 1938 Mm. and Cointreau from 1930, and that will cost you £350. But I think if you've got that and you want to spend it that way, why not have that moment? And also, as Salvatore says, you know, this is something, this is liquid history. Yeah. You know, so you're drinking a drink that carries you back right through to the 1930s. And, And for people that don't know... Alcohol does not lose its its punchiness or any of those intrinsic things that make it the spirit that it is. In fact, some magic happens in the bottle as it ages. So it doesn't age, but, you know, it yeah, just yeah. sort of amplifies, I think. So that's a great one. There's a clover club with beefy to gin from 1930s, raspberry syrup, lemon juice and egg white, and perhaps like something like a Rob Roy, which I think would be delicious. And then there's also, as well, as that they've got a nice selection of they call them mocktails but non-alcoholic drinks one called piano another called drums saxophone and trumpet and they're all just beautifully conceived and I think really nice that there's about four or five of them which is quite a lot now you know for for drinks and it's really nice that they're paying as much attention to the non-alcoholic offering it's a great space, beautiful canapes or little nibbles yeah. to go as well. And we went and spent an evening there. And it's an easy place to spend an evening because you've got the great entertainment. You've got wonderful choreography of the bartenders going on behind you. And it's such a great space to relax and enjoy. We heartily recommend Definitely, and we will be back. So that's Velvet at the Corinthia, and have a look at our Instagram feed to see the lushness for yourselves. Buffalo Trace Distillery, the world's most awarded distillery, is proudly supporting Movember by launching the Great Movember Giveaway. The Great Movember Giveaway marks Buffalo Trace's commitment to the Movember Foundation, sharing values of the importance of honest conversations about challenging the status quo of men's health and never letting them go it alone. This free-to-enter competition has a number of incredible prizes up for grabs, including a Buffalo Trace Barbecue School experience, which features a four-hour barbecue session hosted by pitmaster Jack Rowbottom, bottles of Buffalo Trace and Eagle Rare, donation options and lots more. And to top it all off, all donation prizes won through the giveaway 
will be matched in value by Buffalo Trace. And if that wasn't enough, you could be in with the chance of winning the trip of a lifetime to the US by heading down to your leading retailer and, subject to availability, purchasing a promotional bottle of Buffalo Trace before visiting winwithbuffalotrace.co.uk to redeem your unique code. So what are you waiting for? The competition is now open and running to the 31st of December. To enter, head to movember.winwithbuffalotrace.co.uk And keep your eyes peeled when visiting your local watering holes as over 50 bars across the UK will be running a series of activations and serving plentiful Buffalo Trace Old Fashions with a moustache-shaped orange peel twist. So, book choice. Yes. Book choice. Over the last few episodes, I think we've both commented on the fact that there are a lot of new cocktail books coming our way at the moment. Yes. Well, it is that sort of time. I think people are thinking about Christmas gifts or whatever. So, it makes sense. It does. Mm. And I think more than ever, because there are so many... Each book, you know, you're looking for a point of difference. Why this one? Now, the book in question, I think, has got a great point of difference. It's called Pour Me Another, 250 Ways to Find Your Favourite Drink by J.M. Hirsch. Now, J.M. Hirsch is the editorial director of Milk Street, which is a great foodie site, and also an award-winning food and travel writer. Now, what I love about this book um, and the point of difference is the essence of it is it's basically if there's a drink you like or a spirit you like and it gets you out of your comfort zone. So you think, oh, I like a Negroni or a dry martini, whatever. And it will kind of help you think, well, if you like this, you'll, you'll like, like that. that. Right. And not always in an obvious way. So... Let me explain. There is a, a functional feel to this book. It's almost like a manual. There are nice illustrations. Andrea, let me pass it to you. Mm, nice illustrations. I haven't seen this one at and all. And there's sort of like little line illustrations, and it's divided by spirit. And there are three ways you can use the book. You can either just dive in, as I often do, just dive in, start looking at recipes, or you can use it to go from lighter to more intense drinks. Alternatively, the third way to use it is that it starts off with 10 popular cocktails and you then look at those and then think, well, if I like this one, I can experiment with this one. Yeah. which which they've guided you through that. Do you want that. that as you've got it in your hand? Do you yeah. want an example? So, seeing as we were talking just about um, an old-fashioned before, so it says, if you like the old-fashioned, you're going to love Manhattan, yeah. a, a cocktail called the Poker Cocktail, Mississippi Punch, Rum Old Fashioned, Vodka Old Fashioned, which is quite interesting, yeah. Bijou, and a view correct. So those are some of the ones that it will say that if your flavour profile veers towards old fashioned, that you'll like these drinks. So and they're, and they're not obvious, are they? No, I mean you know some of them you might think are, are obvious, but then the rest of them it's just like oh okay, let me give that a go. And as you say, there's some lovely little um, illustrations, very simple but very beautifully done, very clean. Yeah, really, really nicely um, put together. And as you say, it's nice to have a point of difference because we do have quite a few cocktail books and obviously they all have recipes in. And 
you're, you're also going to find some of the same recipes, but it's the way that they're presented and the way that they showcase themselves to you that really makes a big difference. Yeah, and I think also just flicking through it, because I, I am guilty of just flicking through books and diving in. And I like the fact that, you know, you side by side, you'll get something you recognise, like a espresso martini, but then you'll also get something like called the Dirty Orange, and then you just, just want to read the recipe. Mm. And also, each cocktail has a very simple description at the top, so the Dirty Orange in question says smoky, sweet, creamy, or, you know, flicking them, the vodka old-fashioned, strong, fruity, sweet. So I think this is a great book for people who love cocktails but want to get outside their comfort Yeah, zone. definitely. And, and I will definitely be using Yeah, this. and I'll be looking at that a bit more as well. So it's a really, really nice one. Got good surprise, I think in the way that it's presented so this is pour me another 250 ways to find your favorite drink by jm hirsch published by voracious books at 19 pounds 90 we love us a bit of leo ribicek he's one of the most creative detail-oriented cool operators around Since parking a career in medicine to embrace hospitality, he's risen from bartender at highly acclaimed 11 Madison Park to bar director at Make It Nice, Nomad Hotel and 11 Madison Park, then on to managing partner of food and beverage at Nomad Hotels. Having notched up various awards for his achievements, including Outstanding Bar Programme and Best Bar in North America on the World's 50 Best Bars list, he's now Vice President of Food and Beverage at Sidel Group, overseeing the programmes at Nomad London, Los Angeles and Las Vegas, as well as Penny in Williamsburg and Freehand in Miami, LA, New York and Chicago, to name just a few which is code for saying that he's a very busy, in-demand man. So we're thrilled to have him join us to talk about all things hospitality, including his latest project, The Stunning Common Decency at Nomad London, with its holiday spectacular, and top tips for Thanksgiving drinks. Leo, welcome to the Cocktail Lovers Podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. Great to have you here. So let's kick off, Leo. Vice President of Food and Beverage at Siddle Group, not too shabby for someone who wanted to pursue a career in medicine. So can you tell us a little bit about when and why you started to take your, what was a part-time job, seriously in hospitality? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because I've always been the person that no matter what I did, I wanted to be the best that I could be at it. So even though it was never actually a part-time job. It was always a full-time job because I was going to school and working full-time as well. But even though I never in my wildest dreams thought I would have it as a career, I wanted to do the best that I could and I wanted to be better than I was the day before. And I just wanted to advance in any way that I could. I don't even know when the moment that I thought I was gonna that I was gonna stay in hospitality was because I loved it. I loved it when I was working in it. Um, but I still always thought I was gonna go to medical school and finish that sort of path to be a doctor. And, um, and you know, it's a little different in the States. You have to do four years of undergrad. If you do not take certain courses for your four years of undergrad, you have to take sort of this secondary education. It's called like a post-baccalaureate to take these 10 core classes to then get into medical school. So I had did a different, a different degree, and then I was back in school after my first career, which was, you know, in, in an investment bank. 
And um, I was working in hospitality then because it was just sort of easier with my classes. And uh, as I was taking these courses and as I finished those courses and then as the process of medical school started, I was really, really loving hospitality and what I was doing. And it was Bogadera is a great friend and, you know, at that point was the GM of 11 Madison Park who said to me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, well, I've just spent an insane amount of money because as you know, in, in America, school is very expensive. But I was like, I've just spent $60,000 in the last three years of my life, plus the original four years trying to go to medical school. I, you know, I'm in the program. I think I'm going to do that. And he's like, well, let's pretend that doesn't happen. What would you want to do? And I was like, no, it's going to happen. He's like, all right, if you didn't do that, what would you do? And I think for me, I've always been enamored by food and beverage, and I've always been enamored by hotels, and I've always been enamored by New York. So those three things combined, you know, just it was a no brainer for me. I wanted to create a hotel bar. These hotel bars that I would read about in either whatever cocktail books were available, and you know, back in the early 2000s, or just even in like stories like Catcher in the Rye and, and, and other stories, you would read about these grandiose, amazing hotel bars that were in a way, the birthplace of the, the, the modern cocktail world. I went to all of them when I came to New York. Um, and unfortunately, none of them existed in the way that they used to. So going to, you know, the Algonquin or the Oak Room, they were now unionized properties that used canned juices. And I was like, how is this, you know? So my thought was, how could I recreate what the magic of an amazing hotel bar was but through the modern day lens. And that's what I told him. And he sort of smiled. And then about a week later, he's like, hey, do you want to go for a walk with me? And this was, I was at 11 Madison Park at the time. So Will and I took a walk to just a few blocks up the road. So 11 Madison Park is on 24th and Madison. And if you know New York, you know, the further you go north, it's just a block, which is, you know, like a, a two minute walk. Uh, I went to 28th and Broadway, which is maybe a five minute walk at most. And he shows me this building, and it was in this weird part of town that was nestled amongst all of the best parts of town. And it's funny that in cities like New York that still exist, and it didn't even have a name. People would just call it Midtown, although it wasn't Midtown. It was dubbed as like this place, Little Africa, because there was a lot of like African like hair shops there. Uh, it was also dubbed as like the heroin capital there of New York City. So I walk into this decrepit building with nothing around it. And Will like looks around and says, hey, do you want to build this hotel with us? And at that point, I never thought that was an option. And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. And the way a postback works is, you know, you finish and then you have to defer a year before or you have to wait a year before you start medical school. So I was like, yeah, I'll do this thing for a year. Why not? And, you know, I helped design the Nomad Hotel and Bar and Restaurant. And it was Will, Daniel, and I sitting with uh, Andrew Zobler, who's the CEO of Sedell, who's now my, my boss and, and business partner. But I remember walking in there, being in this meeting and having all these people listen to us, although none of us knew what the hell we were doing. We were just a chef, a GM, and a bar manager, you know, sitting in a room. But that's how the Nomad came to be. And, you know, I then deferred another year and then I deferred another year and then I decided to not go to medical school.
Oh, fantastic. But you know what? I mean, medicine's losses are a gain because it's been incredible. And we remember the first time we encountered both 11 Madison Park and Nomad, which was, I think it was in 2012, wasn't it, Gary? 10 years ago, yeah. That was, that was the year we opened. Yeah. And it was one of these places. I mean, in New York, there were some great places there, but those two bars... They really stood out for us. It was just this, you know, we were doing this fact-finding mission, but we ended up in your places and we stayed there because it was incredible. So can you describe the feeling that we got? What was it that made those two places so special? You know, that was such an amazing time in New York. It was sort of the birth, well, it was like a few years in, but it was the birth of the the not-so-stuffy, like, you know, French fine dining movement in New York and the more adventurous like hipster dining movement is what I'll call it. So at one end, you had these incredible restaurants that have been there forever, uh, like Danielle and Le Bernardine, alongside um, some more modern restaurants, but that still followed the same note, like Per Se uh, and Masa. And you'd go to these places and while it was an incredible culinary experience, they all lacked in any beverage that was not wine. And they all had a very specific style of service. It was technically perfect, but I wouldn't say it was the most hospitable service in the world. And then on the other end, you had all the downtown places like the Momofukus that had just opened then that were amazing, but they also didn't really have any hospitality. The music was loud and there were fun places. It was impossible to get in. The chairs didn't have backs. It was uncomfortable. And as soon as you sat down, they're like, no exceptions to the menu, like no modifications. This is what you're eating. Uh, and they were like doing some like some fun things. And that was all that really existed. And we're like, well, why do you have to have that? Why can't we be somewhere in the middle? So that's where the Nomad came to be. Like we we said, hey, we want to do this new version of dining where it's not like chef focused, which all of these other places are. And it's not restaurant tour focused, which is like what the Danny Meyer places were, which is where we were birthed from. Um, we want to be somewhere in the middle where we care about food and beverage and hospitality and cocktails, and coffee, and tea. And we also want to give you technically proficient service, but in a place that we give you hospitality, like where you make you feel like you're at home, where, you know, it's not like, hello, sir, madam, and it's not like, you know, F you, don't change the menu. Hey, welcome, come in, have a good time. And weirdly enough, that was really novel in like the 2010, 11, 12 era when we were designing the space. And then 11 Madison Park, on the other hand, you know, was a, you know, a zero Michelin star, two New York Times star brasserie by Danny Meyer. And while it was great in its own right, you know, Danny had the foresight of being like, we want this to be something better. And then when he hired Daniel and, you know, myself and Will, we, and then when, when, when they bought it over from Danny, um, I think we wanted to create something that was different in the fine dining world where everyone else had, you know, very similar plates and, and, and glasses and, and styles, we were like, well, I don't want to go to a fine dining restaurant and feel like I'm going to do something wrong or like I'm in trouble to have this experience. Why can't you go to a place where you're having that level of service with an even more exceptional level of hospitality, but that also has a level of fun and that also focuses on cocktail programs and tea and coffee? And it was weird that, you know, all of those restaurants that I mentioned before were amazing, but at that point, none of them had any cocktail programs. A lot of them didn't even have bars. The bars were hidden. And people would tell us at EMP, there's no way that you can get a Michelin star or three Michelin stars 
or for New York Times stars, if you have a bustling bar, you guys need to close, renovate, and the bar can't be loud and boisterous. And we were like, why not? Like the bar brings life into the room. And it's funny because, you know, we started really doing that in about 2008. And we, I think 2010, first came on the 50 best list. And uh, for and we were number 50. And that was the moment where people, all the other places that that I mentioned in New York that had four New York Times stars and, you know, Michelin stars, well, we had three New York Times stars, zero Michelin stars at that point. They started coming in and saying like, oh, I hear you have a bar. How does this work? And then after that, you saw, you know, Danielle Balud created a cocktail bar in, in Danielle, which was like crazy. Oliver to Den renovated and created a cocktail program. Per se, always sort of had a style of a cocktail program, but then they changed it from like gin and tonic focused to more of a cocktail program. And then you started really seeing um, all these amazing places pop up that focused on both cocktails and, you know, food. I'm not going to say we're the first to do it. But definitely from the Michelin star restaurants, it's definitely at the three Michelin star restaurants, we were the only people to do it at that time. Tell us about some of the cocktails that you had on the list, because also you've got a very particular style, but also the sharing philosophy and things like that. Well, you know, I have always been secretly insecure. And um, I think I, I, I never really had a mentor. Um, so I just fell into this cocktail thing. I started working at 11 Madison Park in 2005. And nobody had done the program there. It had been open since 1999. And they still had the original cocktail list that Eben Freeman, weirdly enough, created. And there wasn't even specs for any of the cocktails. And I just showed interest because I loved cocktails. I remember the first aha moment for me was like going to Pegu Club. Um, But before that, you know, I would just, I always liked the idea of making cocktails from when I was a kid. My parents, you know, let me make their drinks. And I thought it was like the coolest thing in the world. So I just always questioned, what am I doing? And at that time, there wasn't many books. You know, I think I had the joy of mixology and Gary Reagan's drink and then a book. And then I also had Adele de Groff's. And then I had like an old copy of the Savoy. And then I think I had one of which classic I had that I had reprinted that I found at some place. But that was it. And I would read these things. I recreate these recipes by myself. And the reality is I thought most of them tasted like garbage. and. Um, and it probably was because products were different back then. You know, you'd go to the Milk and Honeys and you'd go to the to Pegu Clubs and the Flatirons and, and you would have these really yummy cocktails. And I never had anyone teach me how to make them. So I had the luxury of inheriting a whole bunch of stuff from a back bar and being able to do whatever I wanted when nobody was really paying attention to us. And I had a really good chef and pastry team that you know, the biggest gift they gave me is that they were excited about cocktails. And, you know, Daniel and Will knew that cocktails were going to be important. And it was weird because most chefs at that time, I'm not going to mention any names, but I could think of two restaurants where the cocktail program was getting more recognition than the bar programs around like 2008, 9, 10. And they lasted maybe about a month or two, because once they did, the cocktail programs got erased by the chefs, they got fired because they were getting more press than the food. Sorry. Um, and I had a chef that was like, yeah, I don't know anything about it, but we, why not have great cocktails? So the, the pastry department was my biggest friend. And then also all of these amazing ingredients that I had in these amazing, um, you know, later on kitchen tools that I didn't know I could work with. And I had people that were really excited to show me. 
So for me, it's always been uh, seasonal because that's what, you know, 11 Madison Park has been about. Uh, It's always been ingredient focused because that's what 11 Madison Park was about too. So at 11 Madison Park, we were doing ingredient focused, like single ingredient focused seasonal cocktails that were takes on classics. I also really developed a love for sherry early on, not because I wanted to, but because I inherited this big liquor room. And what most people don't realize is 11 Madison Park was like weeks away from closing. Like we started doing what we were doing in 2006. By the time we were in 2008, we hadn't really gotten any real reviews. And we went from having 300 people in the dining room to about 20. And the only reason that we were saved is because Shake Shack actually started in 11 Madison Park as an art project for the park from the original chef, Carrie Heffernan. And when we bought 11 Madison Park from Danny, Danny made us sell him Shake Shack. Of course, we only sold it to him for 30K, but that allowed us to be open one more month. And when we finally got a review by Frank Bruni, I remember during that time, you know, people would, we would call all of our friends to come into the restaurant so it could seem full. And we went from, you know, having two New York Times stars to having three at that time. And that's the day that things shifted for us because once we got that New York Times review, we went from being empty to having a full dining room overnight. But during that time when I was making these cocktails, we had no money, which is weird to say because everyone thought 11 Madison Park must be rolling in the dough. So they were like, you can't buy any booze until you sell booze. So there was three or four wine directors before. One of them bought a whole bunch of chartreuse. One of them bought a whole bunch of Calvados. And one of them bought a whole bunch of sherry. So I inherited all these things that I had no clue how to use. I never really saw sherry in many cocktails in any of these classic books. So I had to start playing with them in like 2006, 7, 8 in order to get rid of them. And I realized, you know, splitting things with sherry helped my cost, but also just made a more interesting drink. Same with chartreuse. Remember the first classic I ever put on, and this is crazy to say, uh, was a last word, but all we had was a whole bunch of VEP. So I was selling last words with VEP green chartreuse that at this point would have probably been old chartreuse for like $12. I didn't know anything about cost back then. Yeah. And look at you now. <laughs> but yeah, for me, I guess I, I sort of looked to Will and as a you know mentor in the hospitality world and chef as a mentor, uh, Chef Daniel Holm, uh, in the food world, because that's how I developed my palate. He had a very specific palate. That's how I developed my form of hospitality. And that's also how I developed my cocktail palate. So I would just ask myself, is this good? Does it taste right? Could I do this better? So I had obviously specific um, recipes for cocktails, but they would change all the time when I would find a new ingredient or when I make things better. Um, so I never, never questioned doing this the right way in terms of, is it, does it come from one of the cocktail dynasties? Because if I would have worked for a Sasha or a Julie, you know, I probably would have done it the way that they did it every single time. And for me, it was a lucky accident and a lot of insecurities that allowed us to develop what has now become, you know, the, the nomad way or the, you know, the, the Leo way. Interesting on that, because, you know, you, you're being a bit understated, really. You know, you're talking about improvisation and making the best of bad situations. But running through all of that and then right up to the present day, it's clear that you have a real creative vision and you certainly have a real perfectionist streak and you have a great passion for what you do. So all of those things have made you become one of the most respected people in the, the hospitality industry. Well, thank you. I didn't. 
it's absolutely true. And I think, you know, could we talk a little bit about the the make it nice philosophy that you were obviously a huge part of and still I guess drives you today? Yeah, you know, it's um I think Will was probably the spearheader of, you know, the make it nice philosophy. And a lot of it came from uh Danny World. And I think that Will taught me quite a lot of things. And one of them is that, you know, never say I can't. Uh, one of them is a quote that his dad used to give him, and I might bastardize this a little bit, but what would you, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? And the other one was that, like, at the end of the day, every single person has a voice because we're only as good as the people, you know, as, as the other people around us. You know, from that, I think that with those things in mind, we were able to continue developing a lot of these things together. I think something that Will did extraordinarily well is allow people that were good at what they do to do what they do, but also allow other people to have a voice and an opinion. And then the thing that he probably did the most that, that, that taught me the most is he created a culture through vocabulary. And, you know, I think we got our first review probably like 2008 after, you know, Chef took over in 2006. And it wasn't a very... Oh, it was a good review for us. It wasn't from a very like known place. It was a New York Observer. It was probably better than what we deserved. And the writer was Moira Hodgkins. And she gave us four out of five stars and said that everything was great, but that we lacked a little Miles Davis. And all of us were like, what the hell does that mean? And I think at this point, you know, we were looking to all of these other amazing restaurants and we were emulating what they did. We like had a similar style of service. We had a similar plating of food. We bought the same plates, the same silverware, similar uniforms. And when we uh, started looking for what this meant, we all went to, you know, what anyone does and goes to the Google machine and typed in Miles Davis. And we all started doing a ton of research and, and Will had the foresight to, to say, hey, why don't we pick, you know, 11 words, because 11 Madison Park, but why don't we pick 11 words that really exemplify who we want to be, or that's, you know, this glasses that we put on that we filter everything we do through that are also representative of Miles Davis. And that's how this idea of vocabulary came to be. You know, we also were borrowing a lot from Danny because that's where we were birthed. That's Danny Meyer. And he was the master at, you know, putting vocabulary to the things that he did. Like you would hear the swan, uh, which has now become something everywhere. But, you know, it's, it's about keeping grace up top and then having your legs kicking underneath. You know, you would hear, I mean, a ton of different things that he would say that just became part of our vernacular. And we adopted those, but then we created a lot of our own. Like we would say ballet, not football. And that's the way that you would walk through, you know, a dining room, you know, not like a football player, but like, you know, a ballerina, but, you know, both with like, not only grace, but with intent. So that allowed us to really come up with these words and um, that helped create what our culture was. And with that culture, you know, it was always a culture of inclusivity. It was, um, it was always a culture that gave everyone a voice, but it was also always a culture that would question everything that we did, you know, that we would always, I think one of our words, I know it's not a word, but was endless reinvention. And then what we started doing is looking outwardly to other companies that we loved and maybe taking things from them. So instead of just looking into the food and beverage world, we started looking at the apples and, you know, at the American Airlines or JetBlue's. And something that we started doing was a strategic planning meeting where we'd close for one full day. All of the managers would serve all of the line level employees. And we come up with these questions. We'd go over the mission statement. We'd basically celebrate every achievement that we had on this big piece of paper. We write down everything that happened in that year. 
Uh, we'd celebrate that. And then we'd go back to the drawing board in a way. We'd say like, okay, these are the things that we want to focus on. We break up everyone in groups. And when I say everyone, I'm talking from like dishwashers to servers to barbacks to uh, host. And we'd jumble everyone up and we put them together and we'd answer these questions and we'd brainstorm based on things that not everyone in that group did on an everyday. And things that we would always focus on or the, the, the rules were, you know, what could you do? What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? Because at the end of the day, we wanted these amazing ideas and we would just try to figure out what we can do from them. So then everyone would present and we'd try to, you know, some of these things or accomplish some of these things in the next year. And it really worked. The other thing we borrowed from Danny is, you know, this idea of enlightened hospitality, which, you know, we translated to taking care of each other, taking care of our guests, taking care of ourselves, holding each other accountable, definitely holding each other accountable in um, a non-emotional way, but also praising as much in a very emotional way. So we always, we, some of the things that we say is, you know, catch somebody doing something right. Everyone always catches people doing things wrong. But that just became part of our culture. Uh, and then another big part is teaching people why. And none of, all of this didn't start from the very beginning. It's every year we would evolve and keep adding to this. And all of it really came from, uh, from the people around us, the people that were working with us. Uh, another big part is promoting from within. You know, we really believe in that. Everyone starts from the bottom and works their way up. And you could really see it. And that's one of the reasons that we were able to grow in the way that we did, because most of our GMs started as, you know, kitchen servers. Um, most of our chefs started as, you know, prep cooks. And that's sort of the way that it worked. Because I was going to say that also, because we're getting on to Nomad London, which is one of our faves, we absolutely know that. But you've brought a lot of people over with you. So that really does exemplify what you're talking about. There's a lot of people that have been with the group for a long time. And I mean, huge props to you guys for that, because there's a reason why people stay in business. So I was going to say, as you know, Nomad London is one of our favourites, absolutely, absolutely stunning. Thank you. And then just when we thought it couldn't get any better, you've added the amazing common decency to it, because it's a bit of luxe, it's a bit of louche, we love that. You always have those, you know, sort of high end and a little bit no, I wouldn't say it's not common, but there's that lovely lightness and, and inclusivity to all of your places. So there is that sexiness, but there's a bit of sassy and a little bit of cool. So tell us about the rationale behind Common Decency and how it differs to Side Hustle and the Atrium Bar. Yeah, you know, it's couldn't be happier that you notice that there's, you know, what we call internally, and this is, I guess, the first time I'm saying it externally, is this high-low moment. For us in, you know, in New York in particular, one of our mission statements was to be the perfect intersection between uptown and downtown. And that probably doesn't mean anything to anyone that's not lived in New York. But what that means to us is a lot of things. And like I told you that story about New York of when we opened. And at that time, New York used to be really segregated between uptown and downtown. And uptown meant above 59th Street. And that was super old school, old money prim and proper. Downtown was anything below 14th Street. You know, people wouldn't go above 14th Street because they get a nosebleed. And that was like central. And it actually really translates a lot to London because that's sort of like when you think of, you know, London, like in the zone one, two, and three, it's like when you talk about the East End and the West End, it's, you know, the West End is exactly that, like a lot more 
heritage, beautiful hotel bars, amazing design, but a bit more proper in, in terms of service. You're not getting a lot of things that are outside pushing boundaries. It's very much classic. There's not a lot of change that happens, but what they do, they do to perfection. They do in the highest end. And then you have the East End where it's, you know, the complete opposite. And, and you see a lot more innovation. You see a lot of rule breaking and you see a lot more fun. And that's been something to us always. We love this idea of duality. And that was basically the essence of Nomad. So to be this intersection between uptown and downtown, you know, that's a place that we wanted to exist. And it always needed to be rooted in the place that we were, but still with this New York and European sensibility. And it should have been, you know, loose and alive and fun. And for us, we also term this like organized chaos. You know, I think when we looked for 11 words for Nomad, we looked at the Rolling Stones. And one thing that we learned from them is that every single kick they did on stage, every single guitar smash was all plotted, was all planned. It was all choreographed. And when you look at them, they're one of the most dynamic bands on stage. You know, they're a little older now, but, but back then they were. And then to learn that every single thing was like thought out, we love that. So we brought that very much into the ethos of Nomad. And a lot of our words are juxtapositions of each other, um, like, you know, evolving and timeless are two of our words which you wouldn't think that they go hand in hand, but they're, they're things that, you know, you always want to evolve and, and you always want to grow. You always want to do something that's different, but at the same time, you don't want it to seem like it's a fad. You want it to seem like it's timeless, authentic and whimsical. Those two hand, words don't normally go together. And authenticity is like showing the truest form of yourself, um, making sure that everything you do is really rooted in a, in a place that's, you know, that is, that is you and that is a, the place. And then whimsicality, you know, you need to um, be intentional with whimsicality, which is another one of our words. Otherwise, it's just gimmicky. Um, so for us, we always love this idea of juxtaposition. So while we look like this beautifully posh West End hotel, you know, the music is louder than it should be. The lights are darker than they should be. The uniforms are a lot more casual. We don't use pronouns. and people walk in, we don't say, hello, madam or sir. We just say, hello, welcome. And the idea of it is that we want people to sort of leave the day away and come in into this like sort of dark, moody place and be transported to somewhere that feels quintessentially London and London, quintessentially New York and New York, essentially Vegas and Vegas, but without ever really existing in those spaces, you know, being what our version of that is. And when we opened, we opened um, Side Hustle, which was the first new place for us that wasn't a nomad bar, nomad restaurant. And then we opened the nomad restaurant which has, the, you know, the atrium bar, which is more of like our hotel bar. And side hustle came from, you know, the idea that every chef has what they cook for a living. And then every chef has a secondary passion. And our chef, Ashley, started as a cook at 11 Madison Park and opened each nomad with us and is now the executive chef here. And she was a Boston girl that moved to LA and she was there for six years. And it was the first time that she tasted those flavors. And she's like, wow, I love this cuisine. Um, so that's her showcasing Mexican food from Southern LA. So it's going to sound a little weird, but for Side Hustle for us was always more of our version of a pub. When I mean that, I don't mean through its offerings. I mean through what a pub feels like, right? A public house is a place of the community. People go there for breakfast, they go there for lunch, they go for dinner, they go for late night drinks, they go there for snacks, they go there for a meeting, they go there for a date, they go there with family. It's a place that you come in and you can come at any time and that's the feeling that we wanted it to feel like. 
Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but Nomad New York, when we opened the Nomad Bar, that was our version as well. Like what, what you know, how through the lens of a cocktail bar. So this is a pub through the lens of a cocktail bar that specializes in Mexican uh, ingredients uh, and agave. So we always knew that that was going to be the space for the community, um, the space that was a little bit more casual, that was still fun, that could you can come at any time. And we always plan to open Common Decency as more of our cocktail bar. But that changed in different iterations because when the pandemic happened, well, we're like, what, what do we want now? And for us, I think we wanted a place where people could have fun. But that was a controlled sense of fun. We wanted a place that was, you know, it's subterranean. And we wanted a place where you can come. And it doesn't necessarily feel like a night out in terms of like you're at a nightclub. But you get a lot of the same vibes. Like you come, you could still get great service. You could hopefully get great cocktails. You know, but there's DJs that are spinning like swishy music. And there's cocktails that are very much conceptualized into what the Nomad ethos is. So for us, when we were building that list, it was like, how do we showcase something that's the most nomad that we've ever done? And it's so sexy. It really... <laughs> so sexy. And very kind of grown up as well. Yes. You know, that... Yeah, well, you know, it's grown up, but at the same time, it's fun. It's, it allows it to be a little bit... There's three different parts of it. There's, you know, what we call the East End, then sort of the middle, and then the West End. Uh, and on the East End, it's all standing room, and it's by the bar. Then the middle area, there's seating and standing. And then the West End, it's all seated where the DJ is. Yes, absolutely. So oh, that's good that you explained it. There. Yeah. And then we have these great snugs. There were the old coal sheds that are three large rooms. There's one for 12, and the other ones are for eight. And, uh, you know, it's the first time that we didn't make these in a private, like, bookable rooms in that way. You could just reserve them um, because we want a place that people can come and you know not have to spend an arm and a leg if they want to be a party of you know 12 but when we did the cocktail menu we it's actually the smallest menu we've ever done which is interesting we did uh basically everything i've done in my career so through doing very ingredient focused cocktails at emp then at nomad to doing very classic cocktails with a modern twist that um, are seasonal, that also are very kitchen-centric. I guess we're a bit known more for savory cocktails. But then also doing things that are fun and whimsical and things that you can share, uh, which you mentioned before. Because um, So that's what we did. We distilled that down into its essence, really through what we thought was Nomad in a Cup, and created uh, the cocktail menu for common decency. So it showcases eight ingredients, some that are hyper-seasonal, and some that are a little bit more uh, evergreen. So we have things like cob nuts in the opening menu, which, you know, are from Kent and only season for a small window. And then things like Szechuan peppercorns, which are, you know, you can get all the time. And what we do is we showcase them in two ways. Uh, on the left-hand side of the menu, they're showcased in a way that is a bit more conceptual. Um, so those are things that uh, may be what some people consider more London-style cocktails. Uh, it's something we've always done at the Nomad too, but they were more technique focused, looked a little bit more simple and easy, but have um, a lot more uh, sort of technique uh, on the back end. They don't really fit in any box. And then the other side is our more classic forms of cocktails. Those are things that, you know, you can put in a category. It's like a take on an old fashioned or a take on, you know, a daiquiri. But instead, what they do is, you know, we present it in the very much the nomad way with a bit more of a savory tone. Not always, but, uh, and also a bit more whimsicality in its presentation. So that's what it is. And then right now, starting on Wednesday, we're doing our holiday pop-up. 
Oh, yes. Yes. Tell us. Yeah. So we're keeping the same ethos in, in the style of menu, but it's even more whimsical to, to a max. So we're decorating the space out uh, and it's running for six weeks. And we've always done a version of this at Nomads, well, since 2017. And it's all of your favorite, favorite, like nostalgic. I say holiday. I know that holiday means something different here. Um, so Christmas or Hanukkah type things. But in holiday America, it means during the December period. But it's things that are nostalgic, that are fun, that are served in both a conceptual way and that are also served in more of a whimsical way. And we call them, you know, the naughty side and the nice side. You know, we're working with ingredients like based off of mince pie or candy canes or like hot chocolate, but not always hot. Mulled wine, you know, pumpkin spice. All of the quintessential flavors that we say oh i can't wait yeah so it's it's going on until uh the 30th of of december so it should be really fun and we'll have a lot of decor and we'll have some surprises there'll there'll be little things that happen throughout and what about um you know because you've sort of touching on it there a little bit but um thanksgiving is obviously coming up and it's not such a big thing for us in the uk but we do sort of get excited about all these things anyway so will that be part of this or is that something oh you'll be celebrating in another way so there is going to be some stuff that we do in common decency for thanksgiving we will next year do a actual a proper thanksgiving meal in the dining room this year we're not the only reason we're not is because we uh, on on that day we we actually already have a lot of bookings at something a little different. But but yeah, you know I think Thanksgiving is one of my favorite holidays. Although I'm not American, I'm I'm uh, I'm Venezuelan. But when we moved to the states, you know my mom was like, "Hey, there's a holiday where you just give thanks for the people you love, and you eat a lot of food and drink. Sign me up." Obviously, there's a lot of really negative connotations to how Thanksgiving came to be and the story of, you know, this whitewashed story of the pilgrims and the Indians. But still, what it means, uh, which is, you know, just a time to collect and give thanks for everyone, which starts our holiday season in America. It's amazing. So we'll, we'll, have, we'll have something to honor that in common decency. But I think next year we'll, we'll do a bigger proper feast. So lastly, before we sign off... For any Thanksgiving tips for our listeners to do at home, like a simple drink that they could make for themselves. Sure. Um, I will say a few things. For tips, um, definitely prep beforehand. And I would say batch as much as you can. And for Thanksgiving, I would do a full batch in the morning. Uh, Do it in some sort of vessel where people could just pour in a cup because take it from me. The last thing you want is to be the person making drinks for everyone the whole night. And for the holidays, you know, I, I, I think that you can, I always like making two or three cocktails. I always go things that are, uh, you know, very like nostalgic and seasonal. So one thing I'll make is like an eggnog, which I'm happy to share a recipe with you. Uh, we've become a bit known for an eggnog. You know, it sort of comes from these things that I really hate. Like, it's, it's weird because I, any, anytime I find something I really do not like, I try to make a version of it in a way that I do like it. So Trying eggnog as a as a kid, it reminded me of this thing called ponche crema that we do in Venezuela. And I just never really enjoyed the flavors because you get a really like pasteurized, you know, pre-bottled something with artificial flavors. So I started making it and it's actually quite lovely if you make it right. And, you know, all you need is a, a hand mixer at home and I could definitely send you a, a full uh, full recipe for that. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. You could do it with a whisk, but it takes forever. And I mean, you'll get buff. 
Sorry, <laughs> you have those muscles. You got the most cut arms in the world. Um, then I also always like doing something that isn't quite classic, but has a seasonal tinge. And there's a lot of easy things to do there. Um, to me, making sours with apple and using like spices that um, are reminiscent of like, you know, warm apple cider are really easy. So just taking a basic whiskey sour recipe, bringing down the lemon a little bit, adding like cloudy apple juice. And then instead of a simple syrup, just put all of your favorite spices in hot water. So I, I like doing like cinnamon and clove and star anise and black pepper, boil that out and then measure that into a, a simple syrup using equal parts by weight, whatever liquid you have left over after you strain it and sugar. So I would just say, you know, whiskey, a little apple juice, a little less lemon juice, and then some of the simple syrup makes a really easy drink. So it's like a cold version of a whiskey sour. And then look, for, for those of you out there that like things that are a little less classic, like vodka or tequila, I do something similar with cranberries. I take all flavors of Christmas cranberry sauce and add that to, uh, to Cosmo or to a, a, to a margarita. So those are easy, fun things to make. That's absolutely we'll brilliant. We'll be trying all of those ourselves <laughs> at home this year. Yeah, you need to come in for the mince pie Negroni. We will, definitely. And also for our listeners, we will get the recipe from Leo for that lovely eggnog, which I can't wait to try myself. And all I can say now is, Leo, thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely incredible. And I urge everyone to get down to common decency, and particularly during this um, festive season, the holiday season, which runs for six weeks. But we'll put all of the details on our show notes. So thank you so much. Yeah, and we also have a small version of the Comedy Cincy menu and the way that it is available as well, besides a holiday cocktail. So you could have either an or. And you can book on resi.com for, for Comedy Cincy. Marvellous. We'll be there for sure. <laughs> thank you, Leo. Thank you. The latest issue of the Cocktail Lovers magazine is available now. As always, we're looking at the people, places, products and much, much more that we're loving in the cocktail world. To get your print or digital copy, simply visit thecocktaillovers.com slash magazine.